Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Today we're going to talk about growing in grace, and and it says in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. So, what does that mean, to grow in grace? Well, what do you think of when you think of the word grace? Does it suggest uh, maybe just a religious term that really is hardly used outside of church? I know before I was saved, before I started to know Christ, before I started to read the Bible, I rarely used that word grace. I always thought it was reserved for, for some religious conversation or, or thought that so-called religious people spoke in those ways. Maybe the word grace makes you think of all of the songs about grace. You know, I did a search in my song database and I found over 3,000 songs with grace as the theme. And over 30 were simply titled Grace. Many more had the word grace in the title, like amazing grace, your grace is enough, grace abounds to all, this is amazing grace, grace greater than my sin. But nearly all the songs that I found talk of grace within the framework and within the context of salvation. But is that God's final word to us about grace? Do you think that once we're saved, that we've experienced already the majority of God's grace? And that when we think about it, that very little is reserved outside of salvation for us. After all, there are scriptures that tell us that grace is definitely related to salvation. In Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. In Acts 15.11, but we believe through the, that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. So certainly grace in the context of salvation is a major theme in the Scriptures. We find the word grace 18 in 18 verses in the Old Testament and in over 100 verses in the New Testament. Many times it is in the context of saving grace. But is it something that we continue to draw on in our, throughout our entire life, throughout our entire Christian walk. And if that is so, what do we do with the grace that we continually can receive in our day-to-day -day walk with Jesus? Peter tells us in the verse that we read earlier, 2 Peter 3.18, that we're to grow in grace. There's something interesting that Peter doesn't say, though. He doesn't say that God's grace grows on us. You know how you sometimes say something's growing on us? That's not how it works with God's grace. It says we must grow in God's grace. In John 1, 14, 
Speaking of Jesus, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So if we think about it in that, in that way, according to that verse, Jesus is full of grace. The amount of grace that he has never changes because it's infinite. He has an infinite supply of grace. So then how do we grow? Our growth is in our understanding of grace and in how we partake of that grace. And then in extension to that, how we distribute grace. It's up to us to receive the grace and to grow in that and grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more we know Christ, the more we'll understand the true nature of grace. In Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything, he writes, At one day as I studied this great book, speaking of the Bible, God did nothing less than revolutionize my relationship with him. It was there that he revealed to me the meaning of that simple, well-worn, but rarely understood word, grace. If we're willing to begin to understand the mystery of grace, then we can expect our relationship with the Lord to be revolutionized. And as a result, we can expect our relationship with others to be revolutionized. And like we've been learning in our study through Galatians, God has extended His grace so that we no longer have to live under the burden of the law. Grace removes that weight in relation to salvation so we don't strive to be good enough to earn His favor. The biblical definition of grace in the New Testament is from the Greek word charis. The word on its own means just gift. And in Greek culture at that time, it was used outside of the church. It was used in society long before it was, the connection was made between that word and a relationship with God. If a wealthy person wanted to purchase something for a dignitary or a political official, he would give a charis. He would give a gift. If he wanted to buy food or shelter for someone in need, he would give a charis. And oftentimes, it was done in order for the giver to receive some sort of credit or recognition. Also, and this is very telling, they would look for what they considered a deserving or worthy person to give that charis to. So their gift had strings attached. And there was judgment involved on the part of the giver as to the merit of the recipient. Does that really sound like grace to you? Does it sound like the grace that we know, biblically? There's a book out that's called Charis. That's spelled C-H-A-R-I-S. God's scandalous grace for us. The forward states, Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. 
Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with the intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. It goes on to say that grace doesn't demand, it just gives. And from our vantage point, and from our vantage point, listen, it always gives to the wrong person. It always gives to the wrong person. Because we look and we see grace extended and we think, boy, that person doesn't deserve grace. We judge and we make a determination that grace is going over the top. When used in the context of God's grace, it means unmerited favor or unconditional acceptance. And even if we understand God's awesome grace toward us in salvation, we may not know how to translate that. We may not know how to practically apply that in our lives as we grow in grace, as Peter tells us to do. I think... Because in the church, we've come to water down grace. We've we've come to make it some sweet, safe emotion of goodwill towards someone. But the grace that we're to emulate, the grace that we see in Christ, that we're supposed to exemplify in this world, is Not some sweet, safe emotion. It's stubborn. It's relentless. It's outrageous. And it's even offensive. Listen to the lyrics in the song, Scandal of Grace. It's a very very strange oxymoron that we put those two words in the same title, isn't it? Scandal of Grace. Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on the cross? Accused in the absence of wrong, my sin washed away in your blood. Too much to make sense of it all. I know that your love breaks my fall. The scandal of grace, you died in my place, so my soul will live. Oh, to be like you. Give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you, forever the hope in my heart. In other words, grace doesn't make sense. It's scandalous in how it's supposed to be applied and in how it was established by God. Because God has exhibited grace, He has demonstrated grace in everything that He's ever done. From the beauty of creation, we see His grace. To the establishment of a true relationship with man, God has shown His infinite grace. To the fall, at which time God would have been perfectly in the right to wipe the slate clean, so to speak, He demonstrated grace. To the flood and the protection of Noah and his family and the plan to repopulate the earth, He demonstrated grace. 
Look through the whole entire entirety of the Scriptures and you'll see God's grace in everything He does. Unless you think, well, those people were probably worthy of God's grace, go back and read some of the accounts of the characters in the Scriptures who abundantly received God's grace. None of them, none of them were perfect. Many of them were what we would call unlovable. And to bring that point home even more, in the lineage of our Savior Jesus Christ, we see some fairly unworthy, unlovable people. In Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron. Now if you go back and do the search through all of those people, you'll notice that in Judah's line, it included the illegitimate son of a forbidden affair, and yet, through that line comes forth the Savior of the world. God took the mess that Judah made of his family and he molded it into the perfect plan of salvation. You see, God's job is to make beauty from ashes. Amen? His job is to make riches from ruins. And if we look deep inside of our hearts, don't we see what God has done with us? If we're really honest, ashes and ruins are waiting for God to transform them into beauty and to riches. Biblical grace represents the opposite of our natural tendencies. Yet, don't we want grace extended to us without restriction, without boundaries? Don't we want that grace from others? But do we extend it to others? And not just for those who quote-unquote deserve grace in our eyes and according to our standards, but especially the, those who are not necessarily deserving, so to speak. Do we judge someone's worthiness in order to warrant the grace that we give? Or do we boldly exemplify Christ and shower grace upon them because we're told to grow in grace? We're told to grow in grace. Grace is stubborn. In John 10.18, the first part of that verse says, No one takes it from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. Jesus could have refused to go to the cross. He had all of the power of the Godhead, yet He laid that down, He laid His life down, and He loves us so much that He went willingly. Now, let's apply that to us. If any of us had that power, that awesome power, to avoid the pain, the humiliation, and the death 
would we stubbornly continue to go down that path? Would we lay aside that power, our rights, so to speak? This is the stubbornness of grace. That no matter what Jesus was experiencing, he kept focused on what? No, on who? On you and on I. Stubbornly, he did that for our sakes. Grace is unrelenting. In John 18, verses 10 and 11, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given to me? Peter was determined to undermine Christ's sacrifice, but Jesus would have no part of it. He relentlessly did what was the most difficult for the sake of those who didn't deserve it, and that includes every single person in this room. That includes me. Grace is extreme. Philippians 2, verse 8, it says, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Grace is extreme. God could have used any way, even to sacrifice Christ, but he went to the most heinous death of that time. He went to the extreme to show his love. And he suffered the humiliation and the shame of that extreme death of crucifixion. And it is shameful in Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, his body shall not remain overnight in the, on the tree, but you shall bury him that day so that you shall not defile the land which your Lord is giving to you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. That particular type of punishment, everyone knew who knew the Old Testament knew what that meant. Knew the extreme to which God went to show us His love through Christ. And grace is offensive. Grace is offensive. And that might sound strange, both to Christians and non-Christians alike. Why would grace be offensive to anyone? After all, if you look up grace, even in the Bible, if you look up the Greek interlinear definition of grace, it sounds like this, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, and loveliness. Sounds not the least bit offensive. But let's look at one of the Old Testament examples of God's grace. In the book of Jonah, We all know the story of Jonah. He was given a command of God to go and to preach to the Ninevites. 
to tell them about God's grace, to tell them that they can be saved, that they need to turn from their wicked ways. And what did Jonah do? He turned and he went in the other direction. But why? Why did he do that? It says in Jonah 3, verse 10, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And then on in, in chapter 4 of Jonah, in verses 1 and 2, listen to this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. How could that make Jonah angry? See, Jonah was offended at God's grace. Have you ever become angry with God for blessing someone who maybe offended you or maybe mistreated you or someone you felt didn't deserve it? Have you ever become angry with God? Have you ever questioned God? God, are you going to really bless that person? Is it ever offensive to you that God's grace extends to all people, all people, no matter what they've done? Think about it. I know it's offended me. I know it's offended me in the past. But consider this example. Consider this. Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer, also known as the Milwaukee Cannibal, was an American serial killer and sex offender who committed the rape, murder, and dismemberment of 17 men and boys between 1978 and 1991 with many of his later murders also involving necrophilia, cannibalism, and the permanent preservation of body parts, typically all or part of the skeletal structure. Although diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and a psychotic disorder, Dahmer was found legally sane at his trial. Convicted of 15 of the 16 murders he had committed in Wisconsin, Dahmer was sentenced to 15 terms of life imprisonment on February 15, 1992. And on November 28, 1994, Dahmer was beaten to death in prison by a fellow inmate at the Columbia Correctional Institution. Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean just I mentioned the name and people gasped. He certainly will go down as one of the worst criminals in history. But there's another side to his story. A Christian lady named Mary Mott saw Dahmer on the TV show discussing his need for inner peace. Mott mailed a series of Bible lessons to Dahmer, which he completed and mailed back to Mott. He thanked Mott and said he wanted to become a Christian. Through a series of events, a Christian minister, Roy Ratcliffe, 
went into the prison and led Dahmer to a relationship with Jesus and baptized him in water. Dahmer continued to study the Bible every week in prison until the day of his murder, November 28, 1994. One TV report quoted Dahmer as saying he was at peace with himself and God just two weeks prior to his murder. How do you react to that? How do you respond to that? How does that make you feel? Well, one college professor at that time said of Dahmer's conversion, if Dahmer is in heaven, I don't want to be there. He was offended at God's grace. He was offended at the thought of such a vile and wicked man receiving God's grace. And doesn't it just a little bit offend you? Doesn't it just a little bit? We're offended sometimes at God's limitless grace. I think part of the reason why it offends us is because we have an unrealistic view of ourselves. Last week at the Jamesburg Home Group, we were discussing in the book of James this, these two verses, James 1, 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's, a, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Do we have a distorted view of our own sin. The way I remember the application of those two verses is kind of humorous. I mentioned it at the home group, but I think it's worth mentioning here too. Every morning, like most of you, many of you, you get up, you go and you wash up, you look in the mirror, you brush your teeth, you comb your hair, make sure that your face is nice and clean. You look in the mirror, you smile. And there's a big piece of spinach from last night's dinner hanging out of your teeth. So what do you do? You say, okay, go get dressed. You go out for the day. You forgot you had a piece of spinach hanging out of your teeth. Are you going to face the world like that? Do you look at yourself and not really see who you are or I am? Do you look in the mirror and walk away and forget? That's why we are offended at God's grace to others. That's why we're offended at his limitless, infinite grace. Because we, at many times, have a distorted view of our own sin. Grace can be offensive to us because we compare ourselves to others. But we forget what our own sin looks like to God's standard, which is holy and perfect. So how does this, now that we've kind of redefined grace from that wimpy thing that we always thought it was, how does this stubborn, relentless, outrageous, offensive, and scandalous grace become part of who we are as Christians? Because remember, Peter tells us, Grow in grace. Grow in grace. Well, Hebrews chapter 12, I think, tells us what to do as believers. 
It says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that one of our responsibilities as Christians is to be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for anyone we can pour our grace upon. Imagine, because of our preconceived ideas about people, we overlook who God may be putting right in your path that he wants you to extend grace to. I've been challenged in my life many times over this. Looking back, thinking, God, you put that person in my life. I had an opportunity to extend grace, and I I judge them or I turned my back, or I didn't think they were worthy of your grace. And as we look back on those things, we can repent and God will bring us from that. See, the one other thing about grace is that it's sometimes inconvenient. It's sometimes inconvenient. Maybe we're involved in something, and God brings someone into your life, and he says, show that person grace. Show that person my grace. And how many times may we argue with God and maybe even justifiably not understand how we may demonstrate that grace to that person. And maybe you're in this room today and you're the one in need of grace. Maybe you're the one who Christians have passed by when you were in their path, you were in their sphere of influence, and they overlooked. Remember, it says in Hebrews twelve fifteen, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Maybe you're feeling like, I was there, I was in need. And someone who claimed to know God walked by and didn't even care, didn't even look in my direction. I think we've all all been there to some extent in our lives. We've all been in need of grace. We've all sought out grace. And if you're the one on the other side of that, the one who has not been the recipient of grace, was it because somebody was judging you? Was it because they made you feel humiliated? The practical working of grace in our lives will allow us to demonstrate and, re- and receive grace. And receive grace. It's a, it, we can be on both sides of that. And many times of our lives, in our lives, we are on both sides of grace. In John 1.16, it says, And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. Now I like the way the NIV puts it. It says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace in place of grace? Check this out. This is very interesting when it comes to God's distribution of grace. See, God regulates the grace that we receive throughout our entire life. 
because he's always full of grace. But many times we're empty and devoid of grace. But he's always full of grace, 100% full of grace, limitless grace, infinite grace. No more grace could be put into God. But we are empty. We are in need. So I had to try to figure out a way of getting this in my head. So it's like a gas pressure regulator for all you mechanical people. Okay, so a pressure regulator's primary function is to match the flow of gas through the regulator to the demand for gas placed upon the system. If the load flow decreases, then the regulator flow must decrease also. If the load flow increases, then the regulator flow must increase in order to keep the controlled pressure from decreasing due to a shortage of gas in the pressure system. A shortage, says in Hebrews, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. says here, the pressure, the gas pressure regulator regulates the flow so there's no shortage of gas. So if we're looking carefully, as it says in Hebrews, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, there will be a demand for more grace to meet the need. If we continually look to find the need for grace, if, we're, if we have our eyes open, if we're compassionate to others, if we really want to have the grace of God flow through us to others, we'll continually look for that and, the, and, a, and a greater demand for grace will be called upon. And then what does God do? He sends us more grace. Why? Because we need more grace. And the grace may not just be for us, it may be for others. But God still sees the need. He sees the demand. And He regulates more grace to us. See, He is full of grace. So we will receive the grace, but we'll only receive it if we let him know that there's a demand for it, that there's a need for it. Are we looking carefully for the need so that we can bless others, so that we can bless others with God's infinite supply in grace? We will not grow, Christians, we will not grow in grace if we don't do that. We'll become stagnant in our walk if we don't do that. If we're not looking carefully. Imagine Jeffrey Dahmer's need for God's grace and nobody saw it. It was overlooked. That need, that woman never responded never reached out. God gives us the grace for what we need for whatever situation we're in. And once we start to walk with Jesus and abide in Him, He measures out that grace. And we continue to grow in grace. Sometimes we need the grace to forgive. God will give it. Sometimes we need the grace to speak graciously to someone who who is hurt or in need, God will give it. 
Maybe someone you know or you yourself are experiencing loss or grief. And the need for grace is just the need to be present, just to be there. God will give it. Maybe we need the grace to swallow our pride and apologize to someone. God will give it. God will supply it. God will regulate. He'll measure out that grace that you need for that situation. Once we realize that we can do all these things <laughs> to minister to others, to reach out to others, to, to ha allow God's grace to flow through us to others, Look what it says here in 1 Peter 4.10. As each one has received a gift, a gift, as each one of us who believe has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of what? The manifold grace of God. See, what's a steward? A steward is an overseer. A steward is a manager. A steward is a distributor. A steward is one who cares for something else. You see, we are to be good stewards of the grace that God will impart to us. But are we doing that? Are we managing it well? Are we distributing it well? Are we overseeing that grace well? Are we generous toward others? Is it, it's, it's about being a channel. It's about being a channel for God's grace to flow. Okay, I've spoken a lot here this morning to mostly to believers. But I know there's some who are here today who are not believers, who, are, do, who do not have that relationship with God. And maybe like, like me, you, don't, you didn't understand what grace was at all because you really thought it was just a religious term. So how can you experience God's grace? Well, God pursues all men, desiring to shower His grace upon them. So whether it's the grace to draw out a person's need for a Savior and the salvation that goes with that when they accept Him, or the grace of forgiveness when we sin, or the grace of healing when someone has sinned against us, or the grace of acceptance when we feel we're not worthy, God pursues man in order to bestow His grace on man. And it, all, and it comes in the form of forgiveness, healing, and acceptance. And many times, many times, unbeliever, it comes from the people that God puts in your life who know Him. And if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, they, you will see that grace. You will see that grace. See, we're relational beings. Yes, our relationship with the Lord is the most important. And without that, we won't know how to do any of this to glorify Him. But we're relational also. It's in our DNA to seek out others for relationship when we're rejected let's say because we're made to feel unworthy it hurts 
But imagine being rejected by a supposed follower of Christ. That's pretty confusing. And there are people right here, right in our midst today, and maybe not in this building, but possibly in this building, but in your life, in your workplace, where you, where you socialize in need of God's grace, waiting to be blessed. And it's not just about tolerating people either. You know, because we can put a kind of a face on grace that looks like grace, but it's really just tolerating people. It's not really, it's not aggressive, it's not dynamic, it's not outrageous, it's very, very safe grace. The grace I have come to know, and believe me, I've come to know grace this week because of, of God's revealing it to me. It's not feeble. It's not scrawny. It's powerful. It's powerful enough to save a sinner from eternal separation from God. It's radical enough not, not to care, not to care what that sinner has done. That's the grace we and now I'm speaking again to believers, need to demonstrate to a world that's really just as needy as we are. Just as needy as we are. You see, we look at the distribution of grace sometimes in a logical sense, and we think that good people will receive more grace and bad people will receive less grace. But the truth, the truth, and like I said earlier, it kind of turns it on its head. The truth is nobody's good. <laughs> So then who receives, who receives grace? It says in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we look in a logical sense, Good people receive more grace. Bad people receive less grace. None of us would receive any grace. So when we look carefully, as it says in the Scripture today, for those who need grace, many times we're going to find ourselves. Many times we're going to find ourselves in need. And in closing, I want to just leave you with these verses in Luke. Luke 10, verses 30 through 37. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was and saw him. He had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to, the, to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, 
gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was, his, was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, What? Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. See, although God is carefully looking to extend His grace, sadly, many of us in the church are not. Sadly, many of us religious people walk on the other side of the street when there's someone in need. Like these religious people. The priest and the Levite. They were supposed to represent God, you know. To everyone. But they walked on the other side of the street. Now a Samaritan, it doesn't come through the verses unless we understand how Samaritans and Jews hated each other at that time. So it's not just ministering grace to those who you love. It's not just ministering grace who are good to you. It's just not, not, not just ministering grace to those who are love, lovable, but ministering grace even to your enemies. Sometimes we come to, become too religious. <laughs> we become too religious. And in doing so, we become hypocritical because we really are not representing Christ in our religiosity. And we can have a million excuses. God's calling us as believers to make that choice. He's calling us to look carefully, look carefully in this world to those who may need grace that they wouldn't fall short of it. Imagine just falling short of the grace of God because someone didn't reach out. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.